the ASCO Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hi, Rob Robson. I'm the Trust Leadership Consultant for ASCO. Here we are at a event in Birmingham. What's the, what's the event and what's the idea behind it? It's the Trust Leader Conference and the idea is just to look forward at the moment, to really think about what's coming up for trust leaders, really think about uh, where the system might go and uh, also to inject a note of optimism in difficult times. And we've definitely had that with the range of things we've been talking about. Um, just mentioned the Trust Leadership Programme that we run as well, if you would. Yeah, sure. It's... Um, <clears throat> I'm delighted to say we're full for this year, but we're we're just trying to assess um, where we might be going in terms of uh, another cohort starting earlier than the previous one. But we were on, as I say, the third cohort now of the Trust Leaders Executive Programme, which is about preparing people for the role of CEO within trust, which is something that has really changed. Um, it's a 11-module programme now, which involves um, people from outside education, as well as researchers from inside education. Every single module has been designed by CEOs as well, and it's also got a load of ASCO specialists uh, within it. So, yeah, it's a really exciting programme. You should really enjoy it. Fantastic, Rob. Thanks for all the work you're doing leading trust leadership for us. Pleasure. Really enjoy it. Toby Greeny from the University of Nottingham. And what do you do at the University of Nottingham? I'm a professor of education, so I do research broadly on kind of school leadership, educational leadership, and I'm particularly interested in multi-academy trusts and the school system in England. And you're here at our Trust Strategic Conference today. Uh, You've been talking about research. Just tell us the kind of messages you've been sharing with the audience. So my talk this morning, I tried to provide an overview, a personal overview of how I see the evidence base developing in terms of multi-academy trusts and trust leadership on the basis that we've now had 15 years or so of that research back from the early days, small-scale studies by people like Robert Hill in 2010, 2012. At that time, trusts were just beginning to emerge. They tended to be, you know, some of the early sponsored academy trusts, people like ARC, Harris. um, And what I did was then track how the research has has followed the development of the sector and and then draw out some key questions and messages at the end that I think we face as we move forward. And one of the striking things for me, Toby, was you were saying that for something so important and something which essentially has been an extraordinarily big social experiment, how we educate our young people, there is a paucity of research. Certainly that's one of my conclusions. I mean, it's remarkable that when you delve into the evidence base, you know, I could only find one study, one journal article written about the back office and finances of trusts, for example. That seems to me a thin evidence base, clearly. Equally, when you look at the studies that have tried to kind of map the sector, whether, you know, mixed method studies that have tried to look in detail at kind of how trusts operate together with trying to understand the impact of trusts. There's very few of those studies. Very few of them use rigorous designs, you know, stratified samples, randomised, not not randomised control trials, but quasi-experimental designs. So that seems to me surprising that we've designed an entire sector and yet have very little evidence to support some of what we're doing. And you also pointed out that if you look back to the white paper of 2010, which ignited all of this, that was about single academy trusts. And the great promise was you as a leader will get your autonomy, your freedom. We in government are going to trust you, etc. That shifts in emphasis in 2016 when it becomes about multi-academy trusts, neither of which have got a huge amount of research behind them, as I understand it. So, I mean, yes, absolutely. 2010... At that time, what were called academy chains were seen as a backstop measure, really, just to pick up schools that were failing and and turn them around. 
it was only by 2016 that the department realised it wanted to kind of move all schools into a trust. Evidence to support school autonomy, which was kind of the rationale for the 2010 white paper, the Michael Gove reforms, you know, there is evidence to show that where school leaders have sufficient autonomy to be able to kind of adapt and um, employ teachers, use the budget, design teaching and learning and curriculum in order to meet the needs of their specific school and community is associated where it's combined with sufficient leadership capacity and with appropriate forms of accountability that is associated with system improvement so there is an argument for that my own view would be that schools had quite well not my own view there was strong evidence from the OECD and others back in 2010 that schools in England even at that time were amongst the most autonomous in the world so it's not the case that we moved from a non-autonomous system to an autonomous system we moved from an autonomous system to a I would argue unregulated system and then through the emergence of the trusts and then the kind of academy's handbook and so on we've started to regulate again we've ended up with a system that many i talk to would say is now more bureaucratic and less autonomous than the system that it preceded my very last point we used to use the phrase a lot system leadership and this was about the system improving the system through collaboration etc and i mentioned in the stuff i was doing earlier on about the ability to be able to recruit and retain teachers and leaders. What you essentially did, without using the phrase system leadership, was to say, of course, this is the Secretary of State's responsibility, but frankly, the opportunity is also for trusts. Absolutely. I mean, trusts clearly employ teachers, teaching assistants, you know, thousands of staff, and have a huge responsibility as well as opportunity to create really successful workplaces that people want to come and work in and that feel people feel well supported in. And I... I know of lots of trusts that do that really, really well and are thinking really hard about how to do it better. So I'm not saying for a moment that this isn't happening. I think there is more opportunity to do this, to go further with this, because it seems to me that recruiting, retaining teachers and leaders is probably one of our top priorities as we move forward. Toby Grinney, thank you very much. So I'm Dawn Hayward and I'm the Chief Executive of Windsor Academy Trust. And just tell us a bit about Windsor Academy Trust, because it's not in Windsor, is it? No, the Windsor Academy Trust is a family of 15 schools in five different local authorities, predominantly education investment areas and priority education investment areas across the West Midlands. And you just told us about an extraordinary ambition which you were putting into practice around sustainability. What's the plan? So our mission is to become net zero by 2030. And I think that, you know, as educators, we're always striving to ensure that our young people thrive. And I think that part of that thriving is ensuring the world they inherit is, is a world that is, is just fantastic. So we want to make sure that we leave the world in a better place for the young people that we're serving today and for tomorrow. And that's got some very practical consequences. For example, if we came into one of the schools in your trust, we're not going to see a lot of photocopying, glue sticks and all of that kind of stuff. How have you won hearts and minds with this? Yeah, so I think that I think everybody knows that sustainability matters. I think everybody, you know, intuitively know that we need to take care of our planet. And so I think it's always starting with why. Why does this matter? Why is this important? And then we go on to, well, how do we do it? And what individual and collective action does that require us to take? And so you will see things like iPads in in the hands of young people rather than glue sticks in their hands. You'll see solar panels on on the roofs of the school buildings. You'll see LED lighting. 
you'll see um, you know, no, no, no single-use plastics. You'll see um, things that are recyclable um, because those are the actions that we can take that will lead to the overall reduction in CO2 emissions. And just one, one last point. For the staff, you're doing something quite specific in terms of them deciding to have electric vehicles, aren't they? Yeah, and I think that that's, that's really important that we, there, there are many ways that we can um, look at staff pay and staff benefits. And I think that by having electric, um, a salary sacrifice scheme for electric vehicles, but equally staff being able to charge the vehicles up at school rather than having to pay for it at home, just adds to how staff feel about the organisation they work for. You use the sense of mission. You're on an extraordinary mission. It was just great to hear about it. Dawn Hayward, you've got to rush for a train now, but uh, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Always a privilege. Alex Russell, CEO of Bourne Education Trust. Just tell us a little bit about Bourne Education Trust. Uh, Bourne Education Trust is a regional mat of 26 schools across primary, secondary and special educational needs. Now, you've been talking about artificial intelligence and I think I probably rolled my eyes thinking, here's someone else who's going to tell us about the threats of artificial intelligence. You didn't do that. You talked about it as an extraordinary transformer, both in terms of workload, children's ability to learn. Just talk us through some of the things you've just been saying. So I think this is a seminal moment for the profession. Um, All the narrative around education is negative. And if I said to you I worked for a big ed tech company, you would say that's amazing. And yet the narrative with education is that it's workload, it's tiring, it's, it's negative, negative, negative. I think AI has an opportunity to really cut um, the amount of time teachers spend uh, preparing and allow them to focus on delivery and personalising that delivery for young people. Because let's be honest, Jeff, we have not served our children with special educational needs or vulnerable or socially deprived children for a long time now and this really gives us an an opportunity to do that. You've used a number of examples, just describe the volcano example if you could. So in in our schools we use a lot of powerpoints and what I showed you was in real time, it was about two and a half minutes, we produced a top quality powerpoint presentation that was totally editable Um, for students in year eight. We could have amended that for children with particular needs. We could have done it in different languages. It would have been as instantaneous as I showed you during the presentation. And in terms of how staff are responding, you make make the point, I mean, you described people of my age as the crusties, we we are. We will now have an influx of people coming into education, A, with different expectations about what the job should consist of and wanting flexibility and all the kind of things that we, we perhaps wouldn't have talked about. But they will also be much more expert in terms of AI. How have your staff responded? Because you've done something very significant, I think. You started with teaching assistants. Yeah, teaching assistants can have the most immeasurable impact one-to-one or in small groups. And yet too often in schools, they're often forgotten or they're a bit of a last-minute.com. And sitting passively at the back of someone's yeah. class. AI gives them the opportunity to personalise learning in real time in the lesson, no matter how disorganised the teacher is in giving them the information. And what we're seeing, and it is early days, but what we're seeing is children for the first time, for some, feeling engaged because they can actually access the work because it's appropriate to their need and their level. 
and feeling that they are part of the learning experience. And, you know, we've seen a really worrying attendance figures and it's often those vulnerable groups that have poor attendance. And if we can engage with them and make it show that schools have a purpose and can di uh, relate directly to them, then I think we're going to start to win that battle. And finally, Alex, you mentioned a number of packages and programmes there. What, what for, for people who just want to play around with this stuff and see, for example, how it could summarise a document for them or how it could produce a PowerPoint for them, what, what would you say were the three main bits of software? Well, I think everybody's heard of ChatGPT. My word of warning with ChatGPT is make sure that you interrogate it and tell it exactly what you want it to do. It's not Google. It is an interaction with a uh, piece of artificial intelligence. I think Gamma, uh, Gamma.ai, which is um, a presentation software, all, all free. Uh, and then I think there's a really interesting one called Claude, which was mentioned briefly by Rob. That, I think, is excellent and much more sort of personalised and human uh, compared to, say, ChatGPT. And then finally, Copilot is coming in in the Microsoft um, uh, suite, Office 365 suite, I think it's excellent. So what Copilot's going to be doing is, is sitting in the margins waiting for you to say, could you do this for me, please? Yeah, and it will sit within all the Microsoft Office uh, applications in uh, Excel, Word, PowerPoint, and so on. So very useful, very immediate, uh, and, and an easy tool to navigate. Alex Russell, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. The Ask Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.